Welcome to the Educational Physics Podcast. I am your host, João Figueiredo. This podcast is all about education, pedagogy, mindset, and uh, really any other nonsense that I think about during the week. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Educational Physics Podcast. Today's episode is a solo episode and it's going to start a series of podcasts on the concept and the notion of language. First of all, we have to understand what is language. Why did we create language? Why are human beings so much more advanced, at least as far as we are concerned, when it comes to language? One of the most important aspects of the ability to use language to express ourselves is understanding really what uh, motivates learning that language. So when you look at children and you think, why, why would a child want to engage in communication? Why would a child expose themselves to such a difficult task, which is to learn a language? For any of you who are bilingual or trilingual or multilingual, you know that although learning languages is not uh, as difficult as many claim to be, or maybe they even make it to be, learning a language is not easy. It takes effort, it takes understanding the rules of grammar, um, learning semantics, phrasing, and so on and so forth. So where does that motivation come for the child? Is it more of a survival instinct? Because the child knows that without access to language, it will be very difficult to request uh, and fulfill all of its needs and, and desires. Or is it a social need to engage with uh, their parents, grandparents, relatives, friends, etc.? So is the motivation survival-based or social-based? And how do we process language? As far as we are concerned, those are just noises. How do we assign to these noises meaning? That process of categorization of the world is something that is very important to understand when it comes to understanding the role of language uh, on our evolution as a species. The fact that we keep progressing, the fact that we keep pushing the boundaries of what we can do, a lot of this comes down to our ability to use language to our benefit. Because we simplify how to categorize the world by complexifying how we express the world, we allow ourselves a way to share a code that allows us to then work together and cooperate and plot together. And that was one of the, perhaps, main motivations for language at the beginning of it. The need to join forces against nature. Humans are not necessarily the strongest of the animals. We're not the biggest. We're not the fastest. So we had to understand how to cooperate and collaborate with each other in order to hunt, for example. 
But then as we start to analyze the origins of language, we have to allow ourselves to also speculate farther and wonder what really is the main purpose of language. Is it indeed, like I just said, to um, facilitate communication and cooperation or is it to facilitate thought? As we know, humans have this very interesting device, this mechanism inside of our minds called consciousness. And that consciousness gives us this ability to think and reflect and project into the future and reflect upon the past, ask questions, seek answers. All of those processes happen through language. We all know this. We all know that inside uh, our thoughts resides language. We think in words. And even though some people uh, have more visual imaginations, virtually everyone speaks to themselves inside their skulls. This is how we go about our days. We talk to ourselves. So was language first born inside of our skulls and then brought out? Or was language something that got developed from the need to interact and then we adopted that as also the way to think? Noam Chomsky, for example, uh, believes that language is the primordial device for thought, not communication. Communication was, in fact, an afterthought. Steven Pinker, for example, already believes that language does not affect the way we experience, for, for example, emotions, which is something we will talk about in today's uh, episode. And instead, even in cultures where certain words don't really exist to describe certain emotions, these people are still feeling those emotions, although with an obstacle that we will discuss in a minute. Before we do that though, it is also important to understand that language does allow us, that being internally or externally, to simplify the world by categorizing it. Our world is extremely complex and humans as they gained awareness and consciousness and more cognitive capacity became perhaps and rightfully so more overwhelmed with the amount of stimuli coming at them. So it was extremely important for language to become a labeling device as well. We came up with words so we could uh, describe exactly what we uh, meant when we were pointing at something. That process of labeling objects, labeling concepts, labeling people, that allowed us to navigate the world with much more simplicity, much less overload. And therefore, we could then shift our cognitive uh, capacity to other, other um, projects, if you will. And then, that simplification of categories by increasing the amount of options, in fact, so it might sound a bit counterintuitive, but if we had one word for all objects, it would be so frustrating to navigate... Um, <laughs> I guess the, even the concept of a conversation is, is a bit 
bogus here, but it would be so frustrating to navigate an interaction of any kind that progress would immediately be compromised because we couldn't get past the this is what I'm referring to because we wouldn't have a word to describe it. If you can't describe something in the future, you can't create that projection by means of using words without actually having an object to show for the word. How can you create the object? But then we have the concept of emotions. And this is when it really gets interesting, in my opinion. Where I come from, there's a word that is famously unique. This word has been uh, explored and discussed by many philosophers, for example. And it describes something that it, there's no other word on the planet in any languages that describe that exact same motion. So I'm from Portugal, and we have this word which is saudade. Saudade is quite interesting because it defines something that we've all sort of felt. But, for example, in the English language, there is no word, equivalent word, to describe that emotion. So saudade describes the emotion of longing for something or someone. So it's kind of like missing someone, but there's a wanting them to come back. With a bit, there's a, more of a sense of urgency to sow that. Now, linguistic determinism would say that if the English language doesn't have that word, then English speakers cannot experience that emotion. I don't necessarily agree with this, but what I do agree with is that it makes it way more difficult, just like the objects that are yet to be created would be more difficult to create without words to describe the object. These emotions get very blurry in the mindscape of someone who doesn't have a word to categorize that emotion with. So can an English speaker experience longing for someone? Absolutely. Can an English speaker uh, feel the, 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 the emotion, the urgency attached to missing someone, that urge to just be with that person? Absolutely. But is there a resting place for that emotion in the form of a word? And that not being the case, then would that emotion struggle to cope with itself? Like I said earlier, the fact that we've created words to describe the world has made the world easier to cope with. There's uh, also a, another very interesting example of this. Robert Levy, in 1975, wrote a book called Tahitians, Mind and Experience in the Society Islands. So in Tahiti, there is no word for grief or sorrow, or sadness. What um, the population of Tahiti express when they, for example, lose a relative to death, what they express is a feeling of sickness 
or illness or tiredness. So for them, grief and sorrow and sadness is more of a physical sensation. Now this can be problematic because what studies have revealed is that the fact that they don't have a word for grief and instead they replace that with something more physical such as tiredness or sickness, it really doesn't allow a lot of uh, these people to process grief in a what we would call healthy way. And it has been shown by these studies that the process, process of grieving is much, much longer on average. So what does that tell us? Once again, it tells us that words are resting places for emotions by allowing the label to appear and to really be put against that emotion. And emotions can be very abstract. We've simplified what they mean. We've categorized them. And in a way, we've organized our emotional landscape. I'll give you yet another example. For many years, the word anxiety didn't mean to me what it means now. In Portugal, or at least in my own bubble, anxiety was a, a kind of a circumstantial thing. I would see it as being nervous or stressed. But it didn't have uh, some sort of clinical weight to it. It was just something that was temporary and circumstantial. And what I mean by that is that it would be something that uh, I would uh, experience when about to do a public speech, or I would experience when dealing with something stressful in a relationship. But it never really felt like something that could be continuous. And then when I moved to Britain, I, uh, the, the word anxiety has much more of a clinical, uh, uh, how do I put it, it's, it's got much more of a clinical texture to it. And for me, that was quite shocking. I couldn't really comprehend why anyone would see it as a clinical issue. It's just something that goes away. This is my thinking at the time. And, and then I started to actually wonder if I had ever experienced anxiety at that level of that physical sensation of just being incapable of operating normally, more like an illness rather than a circumstantial emotion that just goes away once the circumstances change. And, and I realized that I didn't really know how to pinpoint the physical sensation of anxiety per se. I didn't know where to place it in my body, for instance. It was much more of a brain thing. And then I learned how to identify that anxiety. And funny enough, I experienced anxiety more often than ever before in my life. So did the word, or at least that change of value attached to the word, did that change the way I experienced the emotion? Or is it one of those situations when we learn a new word and then suddenly we can hear it everywhere, which is obviously not the universe conspiring, conspiring for you or against you. It's just the fact that prior to knowing that word, your cognitive blindness 
wouldn't even allow you to process the word because you had no idea of what it meant. Once you learned the word and knew the meaning of it, it starts popping up everywhere because now your cognitive awareness allows you to actually receive that information. Are we dealing with that when uh, dealing with emotions as well? Perhaps. So how does this all correlate to education? Well, Carol Dweck wrote a fantastic book called Mindset, where she pioneered and coined even the term growth mindset. And growth mindset is basically to, or to have a growth mindset is to reframe the world in a positive, but also proactive light. It is about being blunt and honest, but always with the with positive outcome in mind versus a fixed mindset where we accept uh, certain characteristics of ourselves as unchangeable and therefore I might as well give up. Um, so mindset, of course, makes a case for growth mindset. But one of the fundamental aspects of that dichotomy between growth mindset and fixed mindset is language. It is about how we frame our thoughts language-wise. It is about how we perceive a situation internally, how we talk to ourselves. A lot of that process is about discovering more proactive ways to think. And thinking requires language. So if you have a self-destructive or self-critical voice inside, inside your head, uh, whenever you're dealing with a challenging situation, oh, that voice is going to come out. And it's going to say, using language, horrible things that will demotivate you. And they will put you down. And they will bring your energy down. On the flip side, if you're someone who looks at failure and sees that as an opportunity to learn and redirect and pivot and even sees a little bit or, or experiences even um, fun in that process, that's got to do with what language you are attaching to the process of failing. Opportunity versus I'm a loser. It's language. And then the emotions that you feel attached to the same failure stem from which words you chose to describe it. I, for one, have experienced multiple times the, the, the emotion coming after what I said. In other words, I express myself in a way that I know will trigger a certain emotion that I want to experience. So this, this is what I would call self-triggering words. And self-triggering words are very important for us educators to understand. If you're a teacher, if you're an educator, a coach, or if you're a parent, if you're a friend, it is important that you understand that people speak sometimes without hearing themselves. But every now and then they will say a word that is a self-triggering word. And it's going to then unravel and create this domino effect of emotions. There's a bit of a cascade of emotional reactions to that word. And that word might, might come from personal trauma. It might come from the, the, their 
maybe their father used to use their word in a negative way or their teacher at school or a, a, a boss they had who was really not a great person. And, and now this person has adopted that same um, emotional dictionary. And now whenever they use that word, even subconsciously, they're not trying to make themselves feel bad. But that word creates a, a trigger effect and then a domino effect follows of emotion uh, and, and, and th these feelings of negativity or I'm a failure or whatever that might be. So as educators, it's very, very important that we pay really close attention to our students' um, self-triggering words. What do they say? As a, is there a pattern to what they say whenever they make a mistake? Is there a pattern to what they say whenever they succeed? Because you all, you want to double down on those words. And then as educators, we also need to understand that we have to speak the emotional language that will promote the best outcome for our students. So if you start to identify patterns of self-triggering words that actually motivate the students, use those words. Don't punish your students by omitting words that help them. And even more importantly, importantly, words that override the negative words. Because the boost of, of motivation will cancel out all the negative noise, at least temporarily. So support them that way. Stay uh, with them in that, in that interaction. Find empathy. It is all about empathy. If you identify a pattern of positivity and you match it, instead of using what you would consider yourself triggering positive words, use them, uh, use theirs, I should say, then you've, you have found empathy. And you've, you have now found an empathetic way of navigating the challenge that it is to learn. So to finish this episode, I want to say that language, in my opinion, is indeed a device for thought. It is a device that will channel and unleash emotions. Language also has another component, which is, of course, body language, which some people say that it, um, it is up to 90% of, of all of our communication. Others claim that the number is lower. Either way, it's a high number. In the future, I intend to sit down with experts of linguistics, body language, and just general understanding of how words affect human beings and their emotions and their ability to learn or not learn, and explore this topic even further. This is something that I'm very passionate about. I think about this all the time. I am very cautious and conscious of what words to use, what words not to use. I'm aware of my shortcomings when it comes to my own language and my own self-talk because I am aware of my emotional domino effects. So try to think about what your self-triggering words are. And if you are a teacher or if, if you are a parent, try to identify what your students or children's 
self-triggering words are. Think about that. Reflect on that. See where your shortcomings are. See if you say things to yourself that probably you shouldn't be saying as they are manifesting emotions that are not helpful. And thank you for listening to today's podcast. I will see you next week. And in the meantime, learn better. <laughs>